Hello everyone, my name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, August the 21st, 2023. I cannot believe August is almost gone, but I tell you, I am excited for several reasons as we kick off a new week. Uh, boy, uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for uh, your encouragement and uh, being a part of the NBW family. I tell you, the reason I'm excited, two things. First of all, I get to go be at the Hope for Our Times conference with Tom Hughes this week. Uh, so pray for us as we head out for that. Wendy and I will be going uh, together. Brooke's going to stay behind and kind of handle the office. But uh, what an honor to be a part of that conference. I'll be speaking uh, with some of the other uh, speakers as well, uh, Andy Woods, uh, uh, Alex Newman, uh, Olivia Melnick, of course, uh, Tom Hughes, uh, several others. They, their names escape me at the moment, but uh, really looking forward to it. Pray for us uh, as I put the finishing touches on my message for that conference. And as I've mentioned several times, I want to remind you that live stream tickets are still available. Click on the link on our website. It'll take you to the Prophecy uh, Conference website, the Hope for Our Times website, that is, with Tom Hughes. And it's only 15 bucks, and you can watch uh, all the videos uh, live or anytime you want for the next 30 days. And so that's Friday and Saturday this week down in Rockwall, uh, Texas. So that's one reason I'm excited. But the other is, boy, I tell you, we're getting so close on the new book. Uh, most of the editing is already uh, done. Uh, we are just putting the finishing touches on it. It is scheduled to be released. Uh, we'll probably start the pre-sell mid-September, and uh, for those who uh, purchase it, uh, you should have uh, copies in your hand by the end of September, early October, uh, and it'll be posted uh, for sale sometime, as I said, mid-September to late September. So really looking forward to it. Uh, we, we will uh, premiere it at our first uh, conference in October, which is the Prophecy Watchers Conference in Norman, Oklahoma. Don't forget, you can go to notbyworks.org at any time and click on the events tab and see all of our upcoming conferences. But I tell you what, folks, this book, uh, it is going to be so important uh, in uh, with what's going on in this world. It's all about artificial intelligence, um, uh, CBDCs, uh, hacking and tracking humanity. I've got a whole chapter on uh, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, just focusing, of course, on the false prophet. The title is Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. It's essentially the third installment, uh, continuing the theme of my previous two uh, books on Spirit of the Antichrist, but this time uh, focusing on how the stage is being set for the false prophet's unique role in the coming seven-year tribulation. And we got uh, several questions uh, in our stack of uh, questions for the Q&A uh, here about artificial intelligence and other similar things. So I tell you what, I can't wait for that book to get out there. You need to spread the message far and wide. So more to come on that. We'll start promoting it uh, here in the next few days or weeks, but we're getting close. So thanks for your prayers on that. Uh, so this is uh, our seventh episode now of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. I've got 41 <laughs> questions here in my stack of stuff. Many of them are just quick uh, one-sentence answers, so don't uh, think it's going to be an extremely long one like last time. Hopefully I can knock this out fairly uh, quickly, but uh, appreciate all of the uh, questions. Uh, great week ahead, by the way. Uh, Tuesday night, of course, is Prophecy Night. That's live-streamed or in-person at Plum Creek Chapel in the Denver metro area. You can learn more about that at notbyworks.org. 
Wednesday is World Events Update with Randy, and then Friday uh, we will air our third installment of The Mighty Angels of, Revel of Revelation with Nathan Jones. Dr. Nathan Jones from Lamb and Lion Ministries uh, will be with us uh, this week to, uh, uh, to finish up that series. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in. Uh, again, I try to answer these uh, in date order. Uh, and uh, so the older ones are coming first. And uh, if I don't get to yours today, don't despair. We do keep a folder of them, uh, an email folder, and then uh, we will get to them in a future episode. I will warn you that with a new book coming out and entering the fall travel season, life is going to, be, to get crazy. In fact, we're taking a break from our Tuesday Prophecy Night starting in September just because of my schedule. Uh, but uh, we'll still do podcasts, uh, several of them each week like we usually do. But I may not be able to keep these uh, Q&A episodes coming at such a regular clip. I'm going to do my best uh, because I love doing them. But uh, anyway, be patient with us. You always are. Let's dive in. Uh, so the first question, um, this person says, I'm a, a relatively new believer, uh, and I appreciate your insights and perspective. Okay, yeah, this was a question uh, here about a ministry that I, uh, not a ministry, but a, a, a concept that I don't really need to, to, to look into much to be able to tell right away, but it's an article about how Jews and Christians are reconciling for the final stage of redemption. And it, uh, you know, I look at just the first few paragraphs of the link that the listener sent, and I can tell these folks are not understanding uh, the Bible uh, properly at all. So uh, God's program for the church and God's program for, the, for Israel are uh, distinct. God has special purpose in all of eternity for both. Ultimately, those that are believers in Israel and those that are believers in the church, as well as those that are believers before the church age that were Gentile believers throughout the world, will all be in the kingdom together, uh, but functioning in different roles and serving the Lord in different ways. But uh, there's not going to be some merging of the church uh, and Israel. So I could say a lot more about that, but going to uh, just try to keep it moving as best I can. All right, this next question, uh, the person says, I've been going through your series on Calvinism, and uh, you know they uh, are just had a question about the distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism, and they make a comment that as best they understand it, it seems like both Calvinism and Arminianism uh, come from different uh, angles, uh, with the result being the same, namely that you can't ever know for sure if you're a believer. That's exactly right. Uh, again, Calvinism teaches you have to do good works consistently throughout your life and persevere until the end. And if you don't, you were never saved to begin with, so you're going to hell. Arminianism teaches that you have to do good works and persevere in them consistently throughout the rest of your life, because if you don't, you lose your salvation. God will take it back and you end up in hell. So the final destination in either scenario under either system is hell if you don't persevere in good works until the end of your life. That's not what the Bible teaches. I've talked about that um, extensively. Obviously, it's a hallmark, and I shouldn't say a hallmark. It's more of a passion of our ministry here at Not By Works Ministries. I've been passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel uh, you know, for 35 years. And so when we started this ministry uh, in 99, uh, that was our core uh, value. Uh, so lots of great resources out there that we've put together. We've got a couple of... Uh, 
well, one uh, video series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical that's available for streaming. And then, of course, my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, uh, deals with that. I've got another two-part video series on Reformed theology and the nature of saving faith. Uh, but yes, this person is right in their characterization. Uh, but then they ask about the holiness group and where does that fit in? Well, that's definitely a branch of Arminianism. It's more of a Wesleyan approach, but still they make good works um, the ultimate determining factor of whether you are saved or still saved, same difference uh, either way. Uh, bottom line is, um, believers, and, and we've got several questions here in the stack. I'll get to them uh, in due time, uh, but uh, so I may be jumping the gun a little bit here, but several of you have asked about uh, this continuing discussion that we're having about the nature of grace and sin in the life of a believer, and how in the world can it possibly be the case that someone committing terrible, terrible sins could ever possibly end up in heaven? Uh, and again, I just want to clarify that uh, our eternal destination is not based upon, uh, you know, our works, period. Uh, you know, we're not saved by works. We went over that extensively uh, a week ago at Plum Creek Chapel in my message entitled Finish Strong. Uh, every believer ought to produce good works, ought to persevere in the faith and in behavior. They ought to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I've given at, in my message a week ago at Plum Creek uh, 30 quick biblical references that tell us the true motivation for believers, why we should um, you know, follow the Lord and behave righteously. But we never have to follow the Lord and behave righteously to prove to Him or ourselves or anyone else that we are, quote, truly saved. You're, quote, truly saved if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. Uh, some people will say, well, when you get saved, don't your uh, your heart motivations change and so forth? Of course, of course they do. The Spirit of God takes up residence. He's now convicting you of sin and he's, he's leading and guiding you. But the fact of the matter is we can still quench that spirit. Uh, if the Holy Spirit forced believers to obey, then every believer would be perfect because the Holy Spirit is perfect. So he's not going to force people to be 70% righteous or 60% righteous or even 90% righteous. The fact is he doesn't force anybody to be uh, behave properly. He gives us the uh, yearnings and the desires. And if we cater to the flesh, uh, I mean, if we cater to the Spirit, we're going to walk in the Spirit and we're going to fulfill the fruit of the Spirit and we're going to look like believers. I mean, that, that positional righteousness that we have in Christ because of uh, imputation, the moment we placed our faith in Him, is going to manifest itself in godly behavior. But if we cater to that fleshly nature, guess what? We can look pretty bad. And so, um, not suggesting for a second that every dirty, rotten, filthy, scoundrel sinner out there who's engaging in the worst kind of debauchery is definitely saved. We don't know. But what I can tell you unequivocally from the Word of God is that if they're not saved, it's not because of their dirty, rotten, filthy behavior. It's because they've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The one and only requirement for entrance into heaven is trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. If it were true that the Spirit of God automatically forced us to behave righteous once we got saved, uh, then every believer would be perfect. And the fact of the matter is, even those who are so prone to look at the egregious sins of others and hastily con conclude they're not saved are also themselves struggling with sin. Uh, you know that in your heart. So uh, quit judging others and declaring them, there's no way that person can be a believer. No way, no way in the world can they do that. Did you see what they did? They can't possibly be a Christian. God would never let someone like that into heaven. Well, I'm here to tell you there are no footnotes or asterisks with grace. Grace covers all. 
And uh, even though some sins are particularly egregious, and the Bible gives a lot of attention to them, there are no sins that automatically overshadow grace and prove that you automatically go to hell. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, I'm rambling now, but that's hopefully that helps that last question, and, and we'll come back to that uh, briefly here in the future. Um, uh, here is a question about uh, the mark of the beast. Uh, by the way, I have a section on that in the new book uh, as I talk about the uh, hacking and tracking of humanity that the false prophet will be uh, rolling out. Um, they, he, this person wants to know, uh, is, is it possible that the reason people who take the mark of the beast, according to Revelation 13, cannot be redeemed is because they are already dead. And then he talks about AI and using AI to create uh, uh, these uh, embodied uh, human uh, imposters. Uh, well, so I, I would love to recite the, the chapter that I have on artificial intelligence, one of the biggest chapters in the new book here for you, because it's, I'm just so uh, pleased with how it came out, and it's just so chock full of key information that is changing almost daily. In fact, as a side note, I might mention when you get the new book, uh, if you look in the bibliography, you know we always have an extensive uh, citation section at the back uh, giving all the references for research that I used in the writing of the book. You're going to find that a huge percentage of them are from as recently as the month of August, this current month. It's like stuff is happening so fast that you know I, I I'm you know I have to at some point sort of draw the line and say I got to get this book you know to print I can't keep adding new information so I've been researching and studying this in earnest for the book for the last year since Spirit of the Antichrist Volume Two came out but it just seems like every day the news feeds that I subscribe to and the different newsletters that folks have uh, uh, introduced me to like my my friend Shane uh, the technologist that we have on the program. Uh, it seems like every day I'm getting stuff from those feeds that is relevant, and I'm uh, finding a place for it uh, in the book. So uh, we're going to deal with artificial intelligence pretty heavily in the book. But back to the question, no, I don't think that there will be, I mean, there will definitely be embodied AIs as well as Nephilim and other, you know, versions of pseudo-human beings during the tribulation. Uh, and I, I definitely talk about uh, embodied AI as being a means by which the uh, in the book I'm talking about, uh, by which the false prophet is able to promote the image of the beast, you know, uh, globally. Um, but I but when the Bible talks about the citizens, uh, you know, in the tribulation period taking the mark of the beast, I don't think he's talking about dead people there. Um, so interesting thought, but not uh, not where I would go uh, go with that. So more more on that uh, in the future as we do interviews about. AI in the book. Um, here's a per, here's a question. Uh, my question is, why do so many pastors teach from the Psalms like there's a direct application to the church? Well, I mean, this may surprise you, but that's because there is. So the Psalms are wisdom literature like Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes. And the truths that are contained within Psalms, even though they are largely in a Jewish context, unlike Proverbs, which has very little to say about the nation of Israel and the temple and, and the Jewish laws and so forth, nevertheless provide a lot of general wisdom truth and statements that are universally applicable. So they're not directly 
speaking of the church, the church, of course, is a mystery never mentioned in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that the Psalms uh, are, are not to, do not provide incredible information uh, that can be applied to everyday life at any stage, in any age of, of life. They are what we call wisdom literature. So it's timeless truths. Psalm 23, for example, clearly David is making analogies both as a king of Israel as well as a shepherd before he was anointed king. But the principles that are described there are very relevant to us, and, and so it is with, with all of these psalms. I did a series on psalms a couple of years ago at Plum Creek Chapel. So yeah, I, I think the psalms uh, are a great uh, source of truth. And I might also mention that the Bible says all Scripture is profitable. So even though we always have to interpret it in light of its context, that's the key, and search for the original meaning, uh, we can connect the dots of Scripture and find uh, you know relevance for uh, believers in any age. I'm teaching a series right now through Nehemiah, uh, which of course is all about Israel and the rebuilding of the wall, uh, and yet uh, it is uh, uh, it has some great truths that we can apply to our lives uh, today. Okay, this next question. I love it when the email, I print these out, by the way, just because it's a little easier for me to manipulate. I'm not usually a paper guy at all. In fact, I'm kind of opposed to paper. I just do everything digitally. It's just my, my world the last many years. Um, but for these uh, shows, I like to uh, print them out and quickly make notes. I can just go through them easier than, than clicking around on my computer. But I love it when these emails start with, I will try to make this short, and you know, two pages later, I've got this long... Uh, uh, email, but the question here is, and it's a good one. It's actually a good one. I enjoyed reading it, uh, and that's why I decided to go ahead and respond to it. It's all about what we talked about a moment ago about the need for believers to live godly lives and how important uh, that is. I, I addressed this uh, ad hoc in I don't remember when it was. I think it was at Prophecy Night because I picture myself being in the pulpit at uh, at Plum Creek, but it was probably. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it was probably then because it came in right before that. Uh, so it was on my mind, but I appreciate the question. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, reminding people of their security in Christ in no way encourages them to sin. Uh, it's not about, you know, the Christian life does not come down to heaven or hell. That issue's already been settled. Jesus says, when you believe in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So people need to stop thinking in terms of their Christian lives in terms of heaven or hell. Is this behavior going to preclude me from heaven? Is it going to send me to hell? Is it going to prove that I was never saved? Is it going to disqualify my salvation or invalidate my salvation? Those are issues that have no place in the mind of a believer and even discussing them. That issue is settled. What you need to think about is, does this behavior honor the Lord? Is it healthy? Is it going to, you know, uh, reflect well on me? Is it going to bring blessings? Is so forth and so on. And, and as I mentioned, there are thirty some odd uh, motivations for the believer to do good works that I ha that I list in an appendix at the back of getting the gospel wrong, uh, which I, I recommend if you haven't read that book, you get that book. Uh, it's available at notbyworks.org on our store. Uh, but I also briefly mentioned those and put them on the screen uh, at a recent message in Plum Creek Chapel about uh, the new uh, nature. So, uh, so there are many reasons why believers should take seriously the awfulness of sin and why in, there are many reasons why it is a devastating thing. But the fact that, as in this case, um, 
Uh, I think this person's talking about a nephew or something who trusted Christ as a young child, but now they're living an ungodly life, and so they are questioning uh, their salvations. But yes, Christians should absolutely uh, walk in righteousness, but the issue here is should, not must. And many people turn that into must, and if you're not, then you're not saved, and that's not that's where it crosses the line and obliterates grace. Uh, this next question, let's see. Oh, this is about the uh, Maui disasters, uh, the disaster, the fire. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I'm trying to find, oh yeah, the Lahaina fire. I couldn't find the subject line for a minute here. Yeah, just want to make sure I was reading this right. So yeah, the great question. Randy and I talked about this. We spent the, about half of our podcast on Wednesday uh, discussing uh, the Maui fires, and boy, Randy did a deep dive research, lots of information that I had not even come across. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to that for more detail. But the short answer is yes, I do believe something fishy is going on there. I absolutely believe the best evidence that we have seen online anyway from on the you know boots on the ground that are there, firsthand eyewitness accounts in their social media accounts, uh, I believe uh, it is most likely a directed energy weapon. It has all the... Uh, indications of it but i think there's much more going on there randy and i talked about that uh, i do not think it was just an organic uh again organic event uh, next question is about christian marriage and divorce uh, this person uh, and i agree they they are burdened by the fact that divorce is rampant among christians in america would i consider doing a podcast on what the bible teaches about marriage great idea um i will certainly give it some thought um you know, uh, on Sundays at Plum Creek, I generally do a series, uh, and then on Tuesday nights we do prophecy, um, and um, and then of course I do other podcasts on various topics. So, um, yeah, the bottom line is God intends for marriage to be uh, to be permanent, and that's that's God's divine design. Sadly, we live in a fallen world where often man's reality does not coalesce with God's ideal. Uh, and so we want to be gracious. We want to recognize that there are many, many reasons where through no fault of their own, a person finds themselves uh, in a broken marriage. And uh, God's grace is sufficient. I mean, it's not something that is some kind of a um, you know, black mark or, you know, something that we should judge others for. But at the same time, we don't want to wink and nod at marriage. It is a covenant before God, and it's something that, uh, you know, we need a better uh, teaching on. So appreciate the suggestion. Uh, this next one is um, a question about uh, a particular uh, author that I really don't know anything about. So I'm going to have to pass on that one I had intended to maybe do a quick search and just see if I could see a doctrinal statement or something so that I could give at least my initial thought, but I didn't get to that. So apologize. I'll, I'll re-put that one back in the hopper for next time. Here's a, uh, an email. Uh, again, same thing. Yeah, these are some questions about specific teachers. Uh, you know, I might mention... Uh, it always makes me nervous when people send me emails about a specific person, and I and I understand they're they're just looking for input and advice, and it's an honor to to that they value what uh, we have to say here at Not by Works enough to get my input. But I'm certainly not the ultimate arbiter of what's heretical and what's not. I, I encourage folks to learn to look at the belief statements and doctrinal statements and position statements of some of these ministries and pastors and, and parachurch ministries. And you can tell a lot by looking just at the salvation statement. That's the first thing I do. I go straight to the uh, doctrine of salvation. I want to know, do they understand grace? Are they teaching not by works? 
Uh, and if not, then I don't even need to look any further. Uh, so learn to be uh, connoisseurs of doctrinal statements and run them through uh, the grid of Scripture. Uh, this person said, I appreciate your podcast with Tommy Ice, and I'm wondering if it might, if you might elaborate further uh, about the uh, so-called Jesuit source for the pre-trib movement. Yeah, we didn't get to that with Tommy. We debunked most of the biggie uh, false uh, uh, notions out there. Um, but the bottom line is the devil does not like pre-tribulationism. He doesn't like uh, the, the, any ministry that is focusing on the imminent return of the Lord to rescue the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. And he doesn't like Israel. He doesn't like the church. He doesn't like sound teaching that comes straight from God's word. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, rumors and uh, misinformation out there about the source of pre-trib, but we documented pretty extensively, I did this on a podcast with Mondo Gonzalez as well, that uh, pre-trib, first of all, and most importantly, comes straight from the Bible. There's there's no question a plain, normal, literal reading of Scripture will lead you to a pre-tribulational position. But more than that, uh, it can be traced throughout church history. Uh, it is not a novel view. It goes all the way each, each uh, really each era throughout the last uh, 2,000 years. Uh, so I would encourage this person, uh, I don't know that we'll be addressing the Jesuit, alleged Jesuit influence on uh, dispensationalism anytime uh, soon. Um, and uh, But you can certainly, I know uh, there have been a lot of writings out there on that, so I'd encourage you to uh, do some web searching and see what you can come up with. Um, let's see, this person is asking... Um, about let's see any chance you're doing any more books on prophecy well yeah absolutely we i love to write and hope to keep writing till the lord comes uh and we're doing of course the new book is spirit of the false prophet which is very prophetic in nature or topic of prophecy uh would you ever be able to do a podcast on ufos um well, we've done quite a bit. In fact, in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, my last book, uh, I have a whole chapter dedicated to that, which is you know pretty well documented and really kind of outlines what I believe to be the proper biblical interpretation of what is happening uh, with UFOs. So I would encourage you to check that out. I've also done tons of interviews about that. We did a whole dedicated video as part of our Spirit of the Antichrist 18-part series that's available as a streaming video series or a DVD. It's one of the one of the two DVD sets that we still sell is Spirit of the Antichrist, which is 14 hours and 18 videos on 10 discs, and uh, What Is This World Coming To, which is 10, uh, no, I'm sorry, 8 videos on 8 discs, and I forget, 10 hours or something like that. Uh, but anyway, I would check out some of the resources that we have available. Uh, I know UFOs are going to come up a lot in my interviews and pre uh, uh, messages this fall. We have a full slate. Uh, we're going to be on uh, Jan Markell again in September. We're going to be on uh, Hope for Our Times coming up in September. Uh, of course, we're speaking at several conferences. I'm going to be on Dave Fiorazzo's brand new uh, show called Worldview Matters. That's coming up. Um, September, I want to say 11th, I think, that Monday. Uh, so I can almost guarantee you, given my penchant for the subject of UFOs, uh, that, that, that it will uh, come up. So thanks for that question. We're making some good time here. Thanks for uh, bearing with me. I love, uh, love uh, the chance to, to do this. Um, this person asks, uh, 
And by the way, so many of you, when you email in, you, you begin with some very kind words of encouragement and uh, just uh, gratitude for what we're doing here. I don't read all of that on the air because I don't want to be self-serving, but I want you to know it really does encourage us when we get that. But the question on this one is, uh, how did the Old Testament people know the prophetic verses were speaking of the coming Messiah? Uh, I feel like it would have been obvious to me had I been living in those uh, I feel like it wouldn't have been obvious to me. Um, so this is a multi-part question that goes on to talk about um, all that's going on in this world. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, will most people... I wonder what it will be like. I know persecution will increase, but I wonder what it will be like on a daily basis. Will most people just be struggling to survive God's wrath? Well, first of all, God's wrath doesn't come out until after the rapture. That's what the, the seven-year tribulation is. It is the prophetic wrath of God, the outpouring of God's wrath. We see that in, uh, well, all over the Old Testament in reference to this future period immediately preceding Christ's second coming to inaugurate the kingdom. But we also see it in Revelation 6 where the wrath of God is already being poured out. Um, so, uh, you know, I think people are going to be struggling to survive during that time. Um, by the way, sometimes people mistakenly, and I know I'm chasing a rabbit here, but um, I thought about this last night as I was reviewing uh, the editor's comments on one of my the chapters in my uh, book, the forthcoming book. A lot of people point to the Noah analogy that Jesus makes in the Olivet Discourse where he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the day of the Lord. They were eating, drinking, and so forth. And they then try to overlay that into the tribulation and say, see, everything will be normal. It won't be chaotic. It, you know, I don't agree with that at all. They miss the point of Jesus' statement. An analogy, which is what that is, as in the days of Noah, it's a comparison using like or as called a simile, uh, is just making a point. And the point there is of the fact that in Noah's day, people ignored the warnings of the judgment of God that was coming. And during the tribulation, they will make the same mistake. He wasn't trying to say that life will be exactly like what it was in Noah's day. I mean, for one thing, we're dealing with, you know, what, 4,000 years removed. So there's all kinds of differences. So I think that's stretching the analogy beyond what Jesus was saying there. It'd be like when God says, you know, I'm going to gather you under my hand, or when Jesus said, I wanted to gather you under my hands as a chicken gathers her chicks under her wings. Same analogy, if simile using like or as, it would be like saying, well, that means that God has wings and feathers and that kind of thing. Of course not. So I think you're missing the those who make that analogy miss the point. The fact of the matter is things will be quite chaotic during that seven-year period with the seal trumpet and bold judgments unfolding on the earth. Uh, but back to their original question, and that is, how did the Old Testament saints people know they were talking about the Messiah? Well, it was clear from all the way from Genesis 3.15 all the way through God's uh, revelation in the Old Testament through Moses and David and, and the historical books and so forth. That it was clear that they were promised a Messiah, a, a, a king that would reign in the line of David from 7, 2 Samuel 7.16 forever and ever. So they knew. They had a messianic hope. That was unmistakable. Uh, they wanted a king. Remember, they demanded a king, and all of the earthly kings that they got didn't suffice. Some were better than others, but ultimately, the king of kings is going to come back. Uh, Isaiah prophesied about this. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus uh, will be the one who takes the throne of his father, David, the New Testament tells us. So I don't think there was any question they were expecting a Messiah. 
and they were blinded in the first century, missed all the signs. Jesus rebukes them for that, and he warns that the future tribulation generation that's alive when he comes back the second time not make the same mistake. So hopefully that helps answer that one. Uh, let's see. This guy, great question. <clears throat> he says, I love the succinctness of this. Are Calvinists our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, obviously that's a kind of a loaded question because, you know, when you categorize people, you kind of skirt the issue of individual personal faith. What makes someone a brother or sister in Christ is their own faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. You've heard me say that many times, and not me. That's what the Bible says. It's the only means of eternal salvation. So, I would say if a person who espouses the theological premise of Calvinism has ever personally trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone as their only hope of salvation, then they're saved. If they haven't, they're not. Uh, I do try to be gracious to those who come from a Calvinist perspective, particularly in the academic realm who write books about it. I've had good-natured uh, discussions with and uh, written uh, you know, rejoinders and responses to different arguments and so forth in an academic setting, and you can be wrong and be saved. Just to point that out, I've been wrong, and I'm confident I'm saved. I have no doubt about it. So um, uh, this person then goes on to say, uh, if there's never been a change or fruit or evidence of, quote, genuine salvation, their word, uh, would you worry if they are a genuine believer? Well, I don't, I don't have a category of genuine believer. You're either a believer or you're not. Uh, genuine implies that you have to have some type of proof or evidence with it to make it real. That faith doesn't require that. Uh, faith is just faith. You do not have to act on faith for it to be real. A person can have faith that an airplane will get them from point A to point B uh, without ever getting on a plane. Some people have never flown, but you say, do you believe airplanes can fly? They go, yeah, I, I believe it. Well, you've never been on one. Well, I don't have to go on one to believe it. See, faith is just confidence or assurance in something. Uh, it generally, once you have faith, affects your actions because you tend to live based on what you believe. But you don't want to reverse that and say that the way you live somehow proves your faith. So it's silly that people will believe in Jesus and then 20 years later, someone will come along and say, you didn't believe because look at your life. And the person's going, you weren't there. <laughs> When I believed, you don't know what was in my mind. You don't have the mind of God. I can tell you, I believed in Jesus. I trusted him as my Savior and the one who took my place on the cross and paid my penalty. So that they subsequently you know, started living an ungodly life or catering to the flesh and got away from the Lord doesn't change what happened in that moment of belief. So I don't use the phrase genuine believer or truly believes and that kind of thing because you either believe something or you don't. It's not how you believe that saves you. It's what you believe that saves you. Let me say that again. It's not how you believe that saves you. It's what you believe. And when you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for his sins, you're saved. So this person says, if there's never been a change. Well, first of all, when a person believes in Jesus, there's an instant change internally that is not visible to the naked eye. Only that person and God know that they have been quickened, they've been regenerated, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence, and they're now a child of God, born again. Um, so we sometimes look at snapshots of people's lives and we say, oh, they've never had any outward visible fruit. Um, but that's, you know, 
that's for the, for God to say. Uh, you, you don't you necessarily get to follow a person around twenty four seven. So I reject the notion that I you know so and so professed faith, but they never had one evidence of faith uh, of fruit in their life. Well, how do you know? Are you like monitoring them like the NSA twenty four seven? How do you know they didn't, in a, in a moment of graciousness and uh, you know kindness, help somebody across the street? Or how do you know they didn't uh, pray for some? I mean, there are a lot of fruit, quote unquote, of the Spirit that the Spirit of God produces that we don't see or we don't know because we're not with them. So again, we just don't want to get into the business of evaluating the validity of someone's salvation, are they really saved or not, based on their behavior. I certainly wouldn't want someone doing that in my life because then the next question logically becomes, how much fruit do I have to have? Let's say I've got a little bit of fruit. Is that enough to prove I'm saved? Because someone else would come along and say, no, now you need a little bit more. I'm still not convinced you're saved. Let's have a little bit more fruit. And then uh, someone else is going to come along and say, no, 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 you don't. You need more than that. You need a lot more fruit to be saved. So you, you just end up in this, you know, quagmire of basing your acceptance before a holy God on your behavior. So uh, it comes down again to should versus must. Should every believer produce outward behavior that honors and glorifies God? Absolutely. Must they? And is it guaranteed that they will? No. It's not guaranteed because the Spirit of God can be quenched and we still have that fleshly nature. All right, next question. What would be an example of angels ministering for us? This always confuses me. Uh, am I possibly overthinking it? Well, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you that you know, there are countless examples of ministering spirits that the Bible talks about as angels. They might uh, help you fix a flat tire. Uh, they might... Uh, help rescue you from a burning building. They might come along and give you just an encouraging word at right at just the right time. It might be a chance encounter with a stranger that you find out, or you may never know, actually, is actually uh, an angel. I uh, Yesterday at Plum Creek did a, a baptism of a wonderful uh, lady, uh, older uh, lady, and she had shared with me ahead of time, and I relayed to the body. We had a wonderful day at Plum Creek yesterday, another packed house. We did a church, our annual church picnic I had, I don't know, 125 people at that picnic out in the, uh, one of our members' properties. Beautiful time. We did a baptism in the pool, and praise God. God was honored and glorified with the great fellowship and community that we had there. But I shared the story of how this person, in a chance meeting uh, as an adult, uh, they had you know not been saved, had been sort of running from the Lord, but in a chance meeting, they had jury duty. They showed up. Uh, this was in the Los Angeles, California area. Showed up for jury duty early. And um, got in and, and walked and parked in the wrong parking lot. They weren't sure where to park, ended up in the wrong spot. And a parking lot attendant, a security guard, came over and said, Hey, you're in the wrong spot over there is where the prospective jurors park. And it turns out that person ended up sharing the gospel with this lady, leading them to Christ. She placed her faith in Christ right there. And that was it, a chance encounter. And, you know, who's to say that wasn't an angel? We don't know. I asked her, did you ever see him again? No. Do you know his name? Nope. Who knows? I mean, it was probably just a another believer, a brother in Christ, who the Spirit of God led to share the gospel with her. But it could have been an angel. We know in the book of Revelation that in the final stages of the tribulation period, God is going to send angels, an angel rather, to share the gospel. Uh, so, uh, that's just one example. There are a lot of ways an angel basically can be, take on human form and help you in ways that you might not, uh, sometimes you might not even know. 
Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Um, I have a nagging feeling that the writing that the writers of the New Testament expected the return of Christ in their lives. They absolutely did. Um, uh, they thought it was at the door that it was going to happen any day now. Uh, not that they could, uh, not he could return someday unexpectedly, but rather they portray Christ as coming, Christ's coming as though it was expected during their lifetimes. Um, so based on their writings, they believed it was imminent in their lives. Okay, first of all, this person, uh, you misdefine imminent. Imminent doesn't mean in your life. Imminent doesn't mean soon. Imminent by textbook definition means could happen at any time. So therefore, the first century believers and the apostles in Scripture, because the Bible teaches imminency, they expected that he could come at any time. So of course, if you think he's going to be here at any time, you are eagerly awaiting it. They didn't know for sure that he would come in their lifetime, but because he can come at any time, they rightly live their lives with a great deal of expectancy, eagerly anticipating it. And we should too. Imminent does not mean soon. It does not mean in my lifetime. It means could happen at any time. Imminent also does not mean unexpectedly. We extrapolate the unexpected nature from other passages of Scripture and the fact that it is imminent. Imminency demands unexpectedness because since you don't have a day or time and you know biblically the rapture can happen at any moment, by definition, when it does happen, you know, it's not something you can say, oh yeah, it's going to happen in two minutes. So it's going to be, quote, unexpected in the sense of it comes at a time when we do not realize. But we should expect it to happen at any time. We should be, uh, you know, uh, setting our minds on things above and eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. So, yeah, I mean, I think this person is uh, just uh, misapplying the biblical principle of imminence. And they are, their premise is correct. The New Testament writers absolutely thought Jesus could come at any time, and therefore they thought it wouldn't surprise them if he came in their lifetime. Um, they had no reason from their perspective to think it was going to be 2,000 years. I mean, they thought Christ was going to rise up to the right hand of the throne of God on the day of ascension, Acts chapter 1, and come right back down fairly quickly with the keys to the kingdom and inaugurate the kingdom. Um, but they did not think uh, that he, they, they weren't saying that, you know, it's going to happen for sure in our lifetime. They thought it could happen at any moment, which by extension then means... It could happen in our lifetime. So hopefully that clarifies the doctrine of uh, imminency. Um, here's another AI question. I love this. Um, considering that Satan is the master deceiver and likely will use AI uh, during the tribulation, do you think it's possibly that the narrative regarding the disappearance of believers at the rapture could be that we had to be removed by the, quote, aliens and go through rehabilitation or something like that to bring us to an understanding of the truth uh, that the uh, Luciferians are trying to push on everyone. They could use AI. They could have AI mimic us because, of course, they have our data, gestures, and voice. Wow. Yeah, when you read this book and the chapter on AI and, and what they're doing with data harvesting, it's going to blow you away. Uh, you know, I, I learned things. I Even as much as I study this stuff, I it was, it was new to me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is... Um, you know, who knows how Satan's going to deceive the world after the rapture? Uh, I it seems obvious that 
he's going to use the UFO narrative in some way, uh, which is you know tangentially related to AI. Uh, I want to be clear, though, that I do not believe the UFO narrative is completely made up and fabricated simply so that Satan can have a false narrative to explain the rapture. UFOs are real. They are not, uh, you know, planetary or, you know, little green men from Mars. They are dimensional, demonic, uh, spiritual, but they are absolutely real, as I describe in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. Uh, they are part of Satan's unseen army of evil spirits in the celestial realm, and that realm is ratcheting up the closer we get to the return of Christ, and we're seeing much, much more activity in the cosmos about uh, these demonic beings. Um, and uh, in the book, we also talk about spacecrafts and all these other things as you know, shape-shifting manifestations of uh, these demonic entities. Uh, but they're definitely real, but that doesn't preclude the, them from also being a helpful pretext to explain uh, the rapture. Uh, so yeah, good question uh, on, on that one. Hopefully that helped provide some uh, additional information. Um, all right, this one is a little bit longer, so give me a second here to kind of make uh, sense of it. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, this is the same person that asked a moment ago about imminency. Uh, again, uh, they they did not believe that Christ was going to come soon. We use soon coming as a metaphor, at least I do, for imminent. I don't know if Christ is going to come in my lifetime. The best I can say is make an educated guess by, guess by following the instructions of Jesus to look at the signs of the times. So it starts with a study of the Bible and what life is going to be like in the tribulation when we see those types of things ratcheting up and manifesting themselves in ways like never before. It, any reasonable person will conclude that we're getting closer to the tribulation. If we're getting closer to the tribulation, by definition, that means we must be even closer to the rapture because it happens before the tribulation. So you can, the best we can do is speculate that, yeah, I think the rapture is going to probably happen in my lifetime. And I've said recently that even, uh, you know, very soon. But that's not a biblical doctrine, and we're not citing chapter and verse. From a theological perspective, the rapture might not happen for a hundred years. But either way, the Bible teaches it is imminent. And remember, imminent. By the way, I'm, I'm going over, coincidentally, I just realized, imminency Tuesday night, uh, tomorrow night at Prophecy Night. So that's the whole point of tomorrow's session. We're continuing our discussion about the rapture and the second coming, but I'm going to prove the doctrine of imminency uh, tomorrow. Uh, but uh, So that just means it could happen at any time. So I don't buy the premise that the apostles uh, were, quote, misled in their expectations of the soon coming of Christ. They weren't misled. They believed that Christ could come back at any moment. They lived out their days and went the way of all flesh, and it didn't happen. So did the next generation and the next one. We might as well. My grandfather believed in imminency of the rapture. He died. He never saw the rapture. Uh, but it doesn't mean it wasn't imminent. Uh, you know, imminency just means at any moment. At any moment. All right, next question. Um, is about Revelation chapter 20. Uh, let me pull this up here. Uh, Revelation 20 reads as follows. Um, and I saw, this is verse 4, 
And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death uh, has no meaning. So John is looking here. He sees a new sign uh, in uh, heaven, and uh, he he talks about uh, you know the first and second uh, revelation. Uh, I'm sorry, resurrections. Um, the rest of the dead refers to the wicked uh, who are unbe- you know believers that will be resurrected at the great white throne at the end of the millennium. So you've got two resurrections a first and a second, the first for believers, the second for unbelievers. He's not calling this the first resurrection ever of believers because the Bible has already plainly talked about resurrections. But in the context of the final resting place of the redeemed, you've got a resurrection of the redeemed and a resurrection of the unbelievers. So hopefully that helps uh, answer that question. Uh, Here we go. Another question here. about technology during the millennium. Love it. That's what our next uh, book is all about. Um, he, let me call up this reference from Zechariah 14. Uh, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. This is talking about during the tribulation period when all nations will come up and worship the Lord. It shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be uh, no rain. Um, so the question is, will cars, aircraft exist to get there? So how will people be able to do this, in other words? Will good AI also be around, like sat- satellite navigation systems? Uh, is this going to continue in, in the eternal state? No, it won't continue in the eternal state, because in the eternal state you don't have time, and you don't have the uh, satellites orbiting the earth that would be needed for GPS and so forth. Uh, So that one's easy. But uh, as far as aircraft and cars, uh, I tell you what, there's going to be so much devastation after the seven years that it will take a while. But absolutely, we will have, uh, you know, technology that is untainted by the evils of the Luciferians during that 1,000 year millennial phase of the kingdom. And it will be used used for good. Let's see, another question. This one's for Nathan Jones if we do another interview. So I might try to remember this, but let me see if I can answer it. Um, uh, I purchased his book. In page 20, it says, Fallen angels in the pre-flood age possessed men and sired a race of super giants known as Nephilim. Yeah, we, we, we mentioned this, I think, in one of our previous ones. He does not hold the same view that I and others do about the uh, fallen angels of Genesis 6. I do not believe that they simply indwelt human beings. I think they took on human form, as we know angels can do. So I just see it as a difference of opinion there. Um, but this person's question is, would their offspring spring still be humans? Yeah, they would in that case, but and they're not. And so that's the problem. Because if they were human, they would have all died in the flood. And the Bible says they were around after the flood as well. So uh, I would just encourage you to reach out to Nathan directly on that one. Uh, he's certainly a great Bible teacher, and he can explain his view better than I can. Uh, another question here. 
about uh, the evil world um, in, in, in reference to the witch of Endor and Samuel and Saul. In verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 28, Samuel tells Saul that Saul would be with Samuel in death. Samuel died as a righteous judge, whereas King Saul died an unrighteous rebel against the Lord. So why would they be together in death? Well, because Saul was a believer. So there's another example in Scripture of how you don't have to finish strong to get to heaven. God doesn't say you better live a godly life right up until you take your last breath or otherwise you're going to hell. Saul did not finish strong. Uh, he died in out of fellowship with the Lord, but he's in heaven uh, today. Um, with regard to the rapture, next question. Uh, what happens with unsaved people's children? Well, that's kind of a vague uh, question. Uh, first of all, anyone's personal salvation has nothing to do with their parents. Again, salvation is personal faith. Every human being on earth has to personally place his or her faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. Uh, if you're speaking of young children who don't have the intellectual cap capacity to understand the gospel, then I believe they're covered by God's grace. Uh, God's not going to require you to do something that you're mentally incapable of doing. So a six-month-old baby doesn't have to express faith in Christ, uh, but at whatever point each individual reaches the cognitive state where they can know and understand the Bible. Remember, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so you have to hear and understand the essence of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You have to hear and understand that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, that Jesus is that Savior, and you have to trust in Him and Him alone as the only one who can save you. When you reach the point where you're able to do that, then you are now accountable. Uh, so unsaved people's children at the rapture, if those children are saved or of a young enough age where they cannot comprehend the gospel, they would be raptured. Aborted babies, same thing. They will be raptured. Uh, dead children of unsaved uh, people. Again, if they died prior to reaching uh, a stage in their mental development where they could comprehend the gospel and believe it, then they will be resurrected. The dead in Christ will rise first. They're saved. Uh, if they uh, died as children... Uh, and have and were capable of believing the gospel but never did, then they will not be resurrected at the rapture because they're in hell uh, today. So hopefully that clarifies that. Uh, is there any indication, uh, based on my research of alien abductions, that this could be happening to believers, or is it only unbelievers? That's a great question. I, I think uh, theologically, if I put my theological hat on, we know that uh, demons cannot indwell believers. Um whether they can physically assault them, I think they can. I think uh, there have been countless examples of Christians who have been physically assaulted by either demon-possessed people physically lashing out or demons themselves taking on human form, which we know they can do, and lashing out. If they can physically impact you, there's no reason why they cannot apprehend you and do all kinds of uh, horrible things to you. So it is a spiritual battle. Uh, I'm not saying that to scare anybody. I'm just speaking theologically of what biblically we know could, or, or you know, conceivably, uh, conceivably happen. So my short answer, without having really done a ton of research, would be I don't see any reason why uh, demons might not be able to abduct uh, a believer, and that's why we need to recognize that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God. We need to 
recognize we don't, uh, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. So we need to pray and always be on guard. Here's another question about the Maui fires. Um, these seem very suspicious. Uh, what might Randy know about directed energy weapons? Well, we talked about this. This probably came in before our last uh, podcast. So I encourage you to check out last Wednesday's, I know we have a new one coming up tomorrow, but last Wednesday's World Events Update with Randy, the whole first 30 minutes or so or more was about the Maui fires. Um, let's see. This is a question about yoga. Uh, 90% of my friends in Bible study class at church go to a yoga class. I believe it's more out of ignorance. Uh, but what's the best way to address this issue? Um, I recently had a conversation with them, with one of them, and they said, I'm not worshiping. I'm just relaxing my body. Well, sadly, there are a lot of demonic activities out there that are sourced in Satanism and Satan's uh, evil agenda that have been, you know, infiltrated the church. Um, you know, the, the whole Enneagram uh, personality test, the yoga, Halloween. You know, I've seen churches that decorate with, you know, skeletons and witches and things like that for Halloween. It's unconscionable to me. Um, but I think this person rightly points out, Oh, by the way, I just noticed they're from Paducah, Kentucky. I used to live in Paducah as a child. Uh, I don't know how long, a year or so. Uh, but yeah, we know right where Paducah is. I, on one of our trips a few years ago, for not by works, uh, Wendy and I drove by my old house. So let's see if I could remember it. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's gracious to say, yeah, they could be doing it in ignorance, but it doesn't excuse it. Uh, they need to, to, to do the research and not be defensive and say, oh, well, I, it's not, it doesn't mean anything bad to me, so I'm going to keep doing it. Well, what you're doing is giving a, a place to the devil. You're giving a, you know, an opening, if you will, to allow him to get in because Satan is all over yoga and those Eastern mystical practices. So you want to stay as far away from them as you can. And so how can you respond to them? I think pray for them. Um, certainly don't support it. Don't say anything positive about it as it sounds like you already have, make sure they know you're against it. And then I'm sure there's some great resources out there, but my experience in these situations is people don't really want to study and know the truth. They've kind of already made up their mind because to study it and, and realize that it's wrong would be an admission of guilt. It would be to say that what they've been doing and participating in is wrong, and then that brings up a whole other issue for them. So it's easier to just brush it under the rug and say, nope, it's, it's not a problem. It is a problem. Um, let's see, here's a, uh, question about, uh, a church, uh, we moved to Ash County, North Carolina. Um, I'm hoping to find a place for a church. Do you happen to know, is there a church or denomination we should look for in the area? Well, first of all, as large as our audience is getting out, if you're listening to this and you're in the Ash County, North Carolina region, and you know of a good, solid Bible-teaching church that's clear on the gospel, that teaches Bible prophecy, uh, shoot me an email so I can get back to this person. I do not. I'm sure there are some. I hope there are some, um, although they're getting fewer and fewer to find. Um, as far as denominations, boy, that's a tough one. Um, you know, this person mentions a Reformed Baptist church. I would personally Again, not personally attacking you know any of these churches, or if you go to one, I'm not meaning to be critical, but any church with Reformed in the name is Calvinist, and uh, I just wouldn't go there. Um, 
And um, if it just has Baptist in the name, it could be dispensational premillennial. Uh, but even if it's dispensational premillennial, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to teach a clear gospel. Uh, John MacArthur is dispensational premillennial in his view of eschatology, but he's Calvinist in his view of the gospel. So that's that's a problem. That's an anomaly. Uh, so I would just do some asking. Again, look at church websites, see if you can get their doctrinal statement. Call up and, and talk to the pastor. Um, but unfortunately, that's the best I can do. This person says, I wish we lived in Colorado. Well, we wish you did too, although Colorado is certainly, uh, or Camirado, as we sometimes call it, is not the greatest state in terms of the uh, trajectory of the government, the state government. But hey, it's a beautiful state, and there are a lot of godly uh, people here. Uh, another quick question. Can you recommend any good reading on the Millennial Kingdom? I absolutely can. My good friend, Dr. Andy Woods' book, The Coming Kingdom is one of the best out there. Uh, we used to sell it. We may still sell it if we have any more in stock in our inventory. Um, I sold all of Andy's books at, at Not By Works because we've done so much together through the years. Uh, but certainly you can get it at Amazon uh, or perhaps uh, Dr. Andy Woods has an online store as well. Uh, I also recommend uh, J. Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come, and also Thy Kingdom Come. Both of those are just phenomenal books about the kingdom. Um, another recommendation would be uh, George N. H. Peters, the, the Theocratic Kingdom. That's a two or three volume set. And um, The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva McLean. That's a classic that should be in everybody's library. So those are great books that come to mind off the top of my head. My book, uh, What Lies Ahead, uh, is uh, has a whole section on the kingdom as well and the, uh, a whole chapter on it. So that's another resource. Uh, can you please explain the meaning of the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans 11? So great question. Um, the fullness of the Gentiles is similar to the times of the Gentiles. Uh, Christ, in Romans 11, Paul is talking about the coming kingdom for Israel and how the deliverer is someday going to come back and establish the kingdom. That's Christ, Romans 11, 25 and 26. He quotes a couple of Old Testament passages there. So he's definitely talking about the future for national Israel. And he says that won't happen until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the period of Gentile domination that Daniel uh, first uh, talks about in his prophecy uh, really lasts all the way through the end of the tribulation. It's not until the end of the tribulation that the Messiah, Christ himself, comes back and God's spotlight is, is now you know, firmly uh, resonating within the people of Israel and they are you know, ruling the world through the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's the fullness of the Gentiles. It's the time when Gentiles dominate the, the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Uh, that will reach its climax during the tribulation period when the Antichrist and false prophet in the revived Roman Empire will uh, dominate Israel once again, but Christ will throw off those shackles when he returns. Uh, let's see. This person asks about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, most likely at the rapture, the ones who are alive will soon after the rapture appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I agree with that. We know the judgment seat of Christ has to take place after the rapture and before the second coming. Beyond that, we don't know a lot about the timing. But most many of the rewards that church-age believers receive 
at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it a judgment. That's a term that was common in the first uh, century uh, Greco-Roman world, a bema seat that the local magistrates would sit on in Roman uh, cities and the the town square uh, to pass judgment and issue rulings on different civil uh, disputes and so forth. So Paul uses that to refer to this period of time in, in the future when we will all appear before the Lord Jesus to be rewarded for the acts of faithfulness that we've done during our earthly Christian life. But there will not be any punishment or punitive damages doled out. It'll just be reward or loss of reward. And because some of those rewards relate to our positions of service and, and positions of authority that we are granted in the kingdom, we know that it has to happen before the second coming uh, in order for us to use those rewards in the kingdom. Um, and then we know what happens after the rapture. Uh, but then the question is, what about those who die as saved ones before the rapture? Well, again, that the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first. So those who have already died and are with the Lord, their physical bodies will be resurrected, put, given a glorified body. And then all believers, whether the raptured ones or the glorified ones, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Um so that's, yeah, those who die as saved ones before the rapture. Um, I think everybody in the church age receives their rewards at the same time. Uh, so anyway, that's the answer to that. We're gaining on it here. Thanks for bearing with me. I didn't watch the clock, so I don't know how long I'm, uh, I'm lingering here. Hopefully it's, uh, you're still, uh, still with me here. Of course, you can always watch this in segment or listen to this in segments. Um, let's see. Uh, this person... Again, this is about someone who is uh, suggesting that a person cannot possibly go to heaven if they're practicing homosexuality, homosexual or things like that. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what more I can say on the subject. Uh, if a person is committing egregious sins like that, um, one of two things is either true. They're either an unbeliever or they're a believer who's committing egregious sins. And their entrance into heaven depends on which one they are. Their entrance into heaven isn't determined by how terrible their life is. Our, the, our sins are all paid for at the moment we trust Christ. And even if we fall away from the Lord and get wrapped up in horrific behavior, it uh, doesn't invalidate whether we're saved or not. Uh, this person also asks, asks a very good question about how we talk about one of the consequences of sin in the life of a believer is swift physical death. That's not my opinion. The Bible plainly teaches that in a variety of passages. First John tells us uh, that there is a sin that leads to death. Proverbs repeatedly tells us that if you sin and walk in the way of foolishness, your life will be shortened. That's a general principle. Uh, we, we also see James saying that sin uh, is, uh, uh, when it's full grown, will kill you. Uh, that's the ultimate goal of sin, is that sin's a killer. Uh, Romans 7 says sin, I'm just thinking of these off the top of my head, wills to have you, uh, desires to have you. Satan, we know, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So death is absolutely a 
a, an enemy on earth. Now, it's not an enemy eternally because Christ has defeated death. And so for believers, death is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. But to the extent that uh, there is joy to be found in life on this earth, we are to have the fullness of joy, John tells us in 1 John uh, 1. And we are, we are uh, he writes that whole letter of 1 John that our joy might be full. Jesus said, I come that you might have abundant life here and now. For believers... Uh, it's not just that when we die, we go immediately be in the presence of the Lord. It's that we can enjoy the peace of God, the joy of our salvation. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. There's a joy that comes with knowing the Lord Jesus and living for him in this earth. Uh, I'm so thrilled. I mean, we're entering a, a wonderful season uh, in uh, in our ministry here with the new book coming out. And the fall is always our busiest travel time. And then we've got a family trip planned for Christmas this year. I was just telling Wendy, I'm just, I'm just excited. I mean, I feel like this is a wonderful time to be alive, and the Lord is good, His grace is sufficient. We've seen amazing things happening. God is using this ministry. Obviously, we've always got one eye on the lookout for the devil. He, he hates what we're doing. He certainly hates this new book, and as has always been the case with my uh, recent books, uh, he, he loves to, to throw kinks in the matter. There's a spiritual battle happening, but I'm genuinely enthused and encouraged about life. And so in that sense, I don't want to do anything that would unnecessarily hasten my demise. So not to mention the, the pain associated with physical death. So one of the motivations to not sin is that it, it can be destructive, painful, it can cause disease, it can cause suffering, you know, those types of things. So uh, death you need to understand that death has both a present aspect and a future aspect. Um, and so, you know, this person says, why is death considered negative if it's solely referenced in the Bible as a natural bodily occurrence rather than eternal damnation? Well, I just explained why. Um, it has no bearing on our eternity. If you're a believer, death is the golden key that unlocks that entrance into heaven. But it still has all kinds of implications for uh, the quality of our life while we uh, await our home in heaven. Um, who is in the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20? Same question as we got before. Again, that's the that's uh, believers there at uh, the uh, end of the millennium. Let me just make sure I'm remembering that right. So, uh, yes, uh, this is at the end of... Uh, 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 they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Um, no, this, yeah, the uh, and the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So, you know, the first resurrection is the resurrection at the second coming. I'm sorry, I think I misspoke earlier. I'm going fast here, uh, but something reminded me as I was reading the question a second time that I, I misspoke. Uh, so, uh, Daniel uh, 12. Uh, Isaiah 26, several passages speak of the resurrection of Old Testament saints at the second coming. And this is Christ's thousand-year reign in Revelation 20, verse 4. We reign with Christ a thousand years. Of course, we've already experienced our resurrection as a special blessing of the church age at the rapture. Um, but uh, the second resurrection is the re resurrection of all unredeemed of all ages. Uh, and then the second question here for this person, if Jesus is coming like a thief in the night for unbelievers, won't anyone during the tribulation have a sense of when the seven years is finished? Yeah, so this, I think what they're getting at is 
there are warning passages to believers during the tribulation period, and especially national warnings to Israel, to be on guard. The whole readiness passages in the Olivet Discourse, uh, like the the uh, householder, and if he knew what time the thief was coming, would have been prepared, and the ten virgins, and those types of things. Uh, even the analogy of Noah. And so I think what this person is getting at is, why will it be so hard for them to see when he's coming, since the Bible clearly predicts he's coming back seven years after the tri tribulation starts? Well, the fact of the matter is, that's where deception comes in. They will be so deceived, they're not going to be looking at their calendars and counting the days. Secondly, even if they did, they no one will know precisely when the clock starts ticking on that seven-year period because the signing of the treaty is not going to necessarily happen live on TV. Uh, they may be, may be some ceremonial announcement, but according to Daniel 9.27, it starts when that co 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 covenant is confirmed and, and w whether that precise second or moment on a clock is known universally throughout the world uh, is, uh, is, remains to be seen. So uh, I think there's plenty of reasons why people need, during the tribulation period, which again won't be the church, but uh, need to be on guard and be looking. Uh, they're certainly not going to be thinking in terms of, well, we've got three and a half more years. They're going to be fighting for their lives. Um, Here's another question. This one's about A.W. Tozer, and they correctly say it sounds like he's saying that to be saved, you got to make Jesus Lord and Savior, and if you stop making him the Lord of your life, then you were never saved. Yeah, that's exactly what Tozer uh, believes, and I understand that his books have really been profound. He's, he wrote really well and had a lot of little nice uh, bumper sticker quotes. I've quoted some of them positively myself, but on careful examination, he's got a lot of troubling quotes uh, as well. Let me see if I can get my hands on one very quickly here. Uh, the beauty of uh, technology. I can search my uh, files here, and I know I've got one with Tozer in the name. Yeah, look at that, Tozer quotes. Um, so... Uh, Here's one, just, just to, to give you an example. A.W. Tozer says, In the Bible, the offer of pardon on the part of God is conditioned upon intention to reform on the part of man. There can be no spiritual regeneration till there has been a moral reformation. I mean, I'm sorry, but that is blatant works-based salvation. You've got to reform yourself. God's offer of eternal life is conditioned upon your ability to morally reform uh, yourself. Uh, here's one. Uh, fun, this one's even more uh, stunning. This is an A.W. Tozer quote. Fundamental Christianity in our times is deeply influenced by, by that ancient enemy of righteousness. The creed of this enemy is easily stated. We are saved by faith alone. Works have no place in salvation. Okay. He thinks that is a creed of Satan. <laughs> well, then you know, guilty as charged. Uh, it's not a creed of Satan. It's a creed of God's word. We are saved by faith alone. Works have no place in salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Um, uh, let's see. He goes on to say, again, in a critical manner, that uh, as long as we believe rightly, it doesn't matter what we do. Well, that's true in terms of eternal salvation. It definitely matters what you do in terms of other practicalities. Uh, and sin is awful, as we've just talked about. Um, but uh, he goes on to say, again, citing this in disagreement, 
quote, the question of sin is settled by the cross. Conduct is outside the circle of faith and cannot come between the believer and God. He disagrees with that. Um, so, um, you know, anyway, he, I, I, Tozer, I believe, gets the go- or got the gospel wrong. Um, you know, I, I don't quote cite him in sermons and things like that. If he does, you know, if I do want to cite one of his accurate statements, I usually will just say someone said or it's been said because I just he is he's so wrong in his understanding of how a person can have eternal life that I don't want to unintentionally lead. Uh, you know, weak believers into thinking, oh, this guy's great because he will definitely lead you down a wrong path in his teachings with all due respect. And I know his books are, you know, well-received. Um, but, you know, you need to think with a critical uh, eye. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is a question about when God wipes away our tears after, you know, in, in eternity, does he wipe away our memory of the ones who were tossed into the lake of fire? Does Psalm 9-6 answer this? No, Psalm 9-6 definitely does not deal with that. Uh, let me call it up. Uh, psalm 9 is uh, a uh, Davidic psalm, and he says um, in verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever and you have destroyed cities even their memory has perished not talking about their personal memory but memory of them that they be, you know that they're gone and and God's done away with them uh, so no um i think that theologically what we can say is that we know heaven is a place of eternal bliss joy uh and and you know we won't have any negative experiences in heaven uh, there will be regret at the judgment seat for a moment prior to entering heaven uh, as we wish we had done more for the Lord and earned more rewards, but there won't be uh, regret in heaven. So therefore, even though we might today mourn the loss of a loved one who we know was not saved, I don't think we will be doing that uh, in heaven. Um, this is a great question. Um and it was kind of hard to tell where they were going with it, so I'm just going to make an assumption that they were basically agreeing with the grace position that I have espoused and lately in some discussions. Uh, but they said, how does the thief and the cross fit into your theology? He's a great example of someone who didn't produce any good works. Now, the reason I don't usually make that you know, as a compelling argument is because Calvinists and those who think you have to do good works to prove you're saved, they would always answer, they always just say, well, if he had had time, he would have. But the only reason he didn't is because he didn't have time. You know, he died moments after expressing faith in Christ. Um, but it is, to me, a valid point that, you know, if producing good works is required um, to prove that you're saved, then how do you deal with the thief on the cross? And I told you how they would deal with it uh, in their argument. But then it just sort of, whenever you make works determinative in regard to our eternal salvation, you just end up with this never-ending cycle of subpoints and asterisks. And so you go, your argument goes something like this. If you get saved, you must produce good works uh, that are visible to others of a sufficient degree, degree to prove that you're saved, or else you were never saved to begin with, asterisk. Unless, of course, you die seconds after accepting Christ, and then you don't have to do this because you don't have time to do it. And th- those arguments just become really, you know, uh, you know, absurd. Um, uh, 
So, but yeah, great point about the uh, the thief on the cross. Uh, he certainly simply had faith. Um, let's see. I can't wait for your new book. I know. Um, let's see. This person says they this they they're talking to a friend uh, who believes they've got to uh, that it's a works based salvation and they've got to keep the Sabbath and and so forth and so on. Uh, and we must keep them all. What should I say? Well, I mean, again, it's tough to convince people of grace. It's just the enemy of grace. The devil blinds men's hearts to the gospel. It's a free gift. That's what grace means, a free gift. Um, Romans 5. Um, it, it's a, it is good news. It's, it's not, uh, you know, if you, if you make the gospel out to be a contract between you and God where you have to promise to be good and perform well enough to prove something, then that's not good news. That's bad information. Uh, good news is good news that it's free. So I don't know. I think I would pray for this person, continue to, to use the word of God as the sword and not in a combative way, but just let the spirit of God work through the word of God by quoting scriptures and, uh, and pray for them. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a question about, uh, eternal punishment in hell. Um, I mentioned this in a prophecy night recently, so they cite Revelation 20, a couple of passages that talk about the beast and the false prophet uh, being tormented day and night forever and ever, and the devil being tormented day and night forever and ever. But then they cite Revelation 20:15 and say, it just says, if you're not found in the book of life, you're cast into the lake of fire, and it doesn't mention forever and ever. I see no reference to their being tormented everlasting. Well, not there, but it's five verses apart. It goes without saying if it's the same lake of fire that the same you know punishment results. But uh, regardless, we could easily go to Matthew 25 uh, and Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, where clearly unbelievers, Jesus says, uh, depart from me into the everlasting fire uh, prepared uh for the devil and his angels. So they all end up in the same place uh, is the bottom line. So I would go to Matthew 25, um, uh, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. So the key there is everlasting. So yep, unbelievers who refuse to receive the free gift purchased by the blood of Christ will end up uh, paying for their own sins for all of eternity. Here's a question about the series The Chosen. Uh, my view on it... Um, you know, I have some reservations about it, not only the background and who produced it and paid for it, but I just tend to have a hesitation about any biblical epics that try to um, turn the Bible into a Hollywood script. Uh, so much of the information in The Chosen is not biblical at all. It's like the Passion of the Christ was, you know, so much of it was not found in Scripture. And I think it just marginalizes people's understanding of the Word of God and makes them think that, you know, the Word of God is not uh, you know, the authority or the standard. So yeah, not a big fan of, uh, the chosen personally. Uh, just a couple more here, folks. Uh, this person is asking about uh, Donald Trump. Um, I put this in here because they took the time to write a pretty lengthy question or, you know, had a great heart. I appreciate their sentiments, but I'm not going to get into a full fledged, uh, critique of, uh, president Trump. I, I talk about him, I have a whole section in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. If you've not read that, I encourage this 
person to read that book because that's where I answered that question uh, in writing. The section is called, How Does Donald Trump Fit Into All of This? But the short answer is, I absolutely believe uh, he is a pawn in the game, not a witting pawn per se, but clearly used by the Luciferians. They selected him to be the president in uh, 2016 by design. He, he did not outsmart Hillary or somehow you know get the result of a populist movement. Votes don't count. If you remember, we have pretend voting in this country, and it's been that way for many decades. It's all a selection, not an election. He was definitely their guy, and in retrospect, we can see why. They knew they were going to roll out the control of virus scandemic, and they needed a conservative in the White House to be able to convince Republicans uh, to stop worshiping God on Easter Sunday and take the shot and so forth and so on. They would never have gotten as nearly as widespread, uh, you know, uh, participation in those ridiculous mandates uh, if President Hillary Clinton had issued them. Um, liberals tend to succumb more easily to fear. Now, everybody, you know, fear can be a great weapon. And anybody, conservative or liberal, will often fall prey to fear if, if you ratchet up the rhetoric enough and make them feel afraid enough. We shouldn't. Fear is not of the Lord. We, sh we have no spirit of fear. But fear is, it seems to me, in, his, in history, been far more successful uh, in getting liberals to come along. Conservatives, uh, they tend to be a little more skeptical. So they needed their man of the hour, Donald Trump, who can do no wrong, even though he made billions of dollars in the porn and gambling industry. And he's just, you know, by all accounts, as I describe in the book, a despicable human being. He, he may or may not be a Christian. I don't know. I know he says he's a Christian, but, you know, history is full of Republican politicians who were pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality, pro-everything until they had the opportunity to be handpicked by the global elite who rule things and run on the Republican ticket and suddenly they changed their positions. As I cite in the book, Donald Trump has swapped parties between Democrat and Republican seven times, uh, maybe even eight, I can't remember, seven or eight times. So it's just whatever's convenient for the moment. Uh, so yeah, you know, I just... I understand some people have, you know, a blind spot there, and I don't mean that to be critical. They they really have jumped on the Trump bandwagon, and you know that's fine. Do your own research. Um, I could be wrong, um, but I would encourage you to read that section of uh, my uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume Two. Um, let's see. Here's a question about Halloween. I, boy, I don't see how churches can participate in it. Um, it is Satan's holiday. Uh, and I would I would strongly discourage you from attending a church that somehow does Halloween type events. Now, I I think it's okay, and we've done this in churches in the past to have a an alternative, a fall festival where you're celebrating the Reformation, for example, and you're you know just teaching people the kids the Bible and playing good games, and you might allow them to dress up, but it's got to be biblical characters or something completely unconnected to Halloween, but to just, you know, have a quote Halloween alternative, but kids are still dressing up like witches and ghosts and goblins. And, you know, all of that is just to me playing right into the devil's hand. Shouldn't surprise us though with the apostate church today. Uh, okay. We got two, three more here. So we're wrapping up. Um, here is a person who is asking about, let me see if I can get to the bottom line. Oh yeah, same thing. Uh, a Halloween alternative. That's why I put those together there. So just, you know, see my previous answer there about Halloween. 
great heartfelt question here. How should we prepare if we live in an apartment? Can't afford generators, uh, have some food and beans and canned goods, but uh, what do I do next? Well, Again, you can only do what you can do, and ultimately, that's where faith comes in. You've got to, you know, we no matter what we do, no matter what level of preparedness we are able to achieve, we have to trust God. We the horse is prepared for battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. So it's a both and. Um, so I wouldn't panic. I wouldn't get overwhelmed. I would download our preparedness document from notbyworks.org under the resources tab. You'll see it right there. You click the button, it downloads a PDF to your computer or device. Uh, if you have trouble, reach out to us. We'll get it to you. Uh, and then I would just start checking things off the list. Do the next thing. You can't do it all, uh, but you, there are some things that you uh, can do. And then the Lord, uh, he's, he's in charge. You know, He's going to honor your heart. If you sit back and do nothing and stick your head in the sand, that's when I think you've got a problem. But in this case, it seems like you're... Your heart is earnestly desiring to follow the admonition of Proverbs 22.3. You see trouble coming and you want to uh, prepare for it. Uh, last question is, uh, uh, do we see the nations assembled in Ukraine against Russia as an illustration of the Gog and Magog confederacy of Ezekiel 38 and 39? Uh, or is it a better illustration of the ten toes of Daniel 2? Uh, I think it, what's going on over there right now clearly involves the nations that are outlined in Scripture as being a part of the Ezekiel 38-39 battle, the Battle of Gog and Magog, as it's called. That's Turkey, Syria, Iran, Persia, um, Libya, uh, obviously Russia, the, the big the mothership, if you will. Uh, I think it's clearly those nations are involved in it. Is it going to lead to the Battle of Armageddon, possibly. I mean, I'm sorry, the Battle of Gog and Magog. I'm tired. Uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog, possibly. But in my view, the rapture happens before that. So uh, I don't look for it to happen to be rolled out before the rapture. But it certainly seems to be a stage setting. The Ten Nation Confederacy is another, confederacy is another matter altogether. Um, that is... Uh, it remains to be seen what those nations will be in the new world order that the Antichrist will uh, roll out. So we got through a bunch of them. Thanks for listening. I hope some of this was of value to you. Um, and uh, as always, feel free to reach out. Keep in mind that over the next few weeks, there are, we may be slower in producing these Q&As because of just my schedule and especially the book. Once the book is out, then it creates all sorts of additional um, time demands in terms of interviews that we're doing. And then, of course, uh, uh, we hope that some people buy the book. And uh, that's going to mean uh, fulfilling orders, uh, which usually see an uptick after a new book is released. And so just pray for us. Um, we we uh, do want to make these available to as many people as possible. So as always, uh, we uh, we if you want to buy in bulk, you can reach out to us after it comes out and we'll give you a discount on that. Um, but um, anyway, looking forward to a great week ahead. Uh, I won't rehash the schedule again. I mentioned it before. But as always, if we can ever help, feel free to reach out. I want to close out. I think we've talked about it on and off throughout the Q&A today. But just remember, if you don't know the Lord, today is a day of salvation. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And I hope that you've trusted him today. If you haven't, then um, 
you know, you need to do that. And feel free to reach out if we can help clarify or answer any questions about salvation. If you already know the Lord, praise God. Keep walking by faith. Keep looking up. And we'll see you next time. I just realized this ended up being another 90-minute uh, podcast. You know, when I don't have a guest on and I don't have an uh, agenda, I'm just talking. At Time just gets away from me. But the good news is we got through all of our current as yet unanswered emails. So we will start uh, stockpiling them again as you send them in. And sometime in the next week or two, we will try to do another one. God bless you, everyone. Have a great week.